Go ahead and open in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel chapter 24. And so we are finishing up our, our series on the fruit of the Spirit. And, and so as we get started, I want to tell you about something that happened in 1983. So in 1983, there was a, uh, a system set up in Russia where uh, there was a radar system, and, and the purpose was to detect nukes or missiles coming from the United States uh, towards mainland Russia. And one day there was a guy named Stanislav Petrov who was the tech watching the radar system. Uh, that, Adam, did I say that name right? Okay. And, uh, and so he was, he was the tech watching the radar system. And uh, he, while he's looking at it, all of a sudden, the radar system said five nukes were heading from the United States to Russia. And he had just a couple minutes to decide what to do. And so he started looking at what else he could read and assess, other, uh, other instruments, other things he had to, to assess, is this a real threat or is this a malfunction? And after looking at other systems, he decided this is a malfunction, this is not real. And so he chose not to pass this information on to his superiors. And so later on, a, uh, um, uh, what they found, or obviously what they found out is that it was actually a malfunction within their system. There were no missiles heading to, towards Russia whatsoever. Later on, a senior official was, was talking about this situation and said, had that information been passed on to other senior officials who were in charge at that time, given only minutes to decide how to respond, they would have launched nukes uh, headed towards the United States had he passed that information on. And that was in 1983. And so stories like this remind us that there is a goodness in self-control. Like experiencing or like demonstrating self-control in situations where you're trying to read a situation and saying, hey, hold on, I'm going to pause for a second, and I'm going to assess how do I really want to respond here. Sometimes that's actually a really good decision. And, uh, and so as we're, this morning we're finishing up our series in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. We've come to the last fruit that the Spirit wants to develop within the heart of believers, and that is self-control. It's self-control. And so looking at self-control this morning, I want us to look at another instance in Scripture in which there was a decision point in, in King David's life in which he had to decide, am I going to follow through with my impulse, with what I, what I really want to do here, or am I going to pause and demonstrate discipline in this situation? And so look at 1 Samuel 24 with me. We're going to look at verse, starting in verse 1. So if you're new to the Bible, when I say chapter, that's the big number on the page. And the verse is the small number on the page. And so big number 24 in First Samuel, if you don't know where it is, just go to the table of contents and it'll, it'll help you out on where to find it. And so verse 1 says, And when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told that David is in the wilderness near En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 visuals, fit young men, and went to look for David and his men in front of the rocks of wild the rocks of the wild goats. And so let's pray before we dig into God's word this morning. So Father, come before you. We thank you so much for your word. And we come to you not out of just a routine, but as a 
as a response or as a recognition that we need you to open our hearts to hear what you want to say to us this morning. Um, because this is your word, and you want to speak to us through it, but we need to do it through you. And so I pray for the Spirit to uh, allow us to understand and hear from you this morning, uh, because we want to walk and keep in step with Him. And so we, uh, we love you. Help us to understand uh, and think about self-control in our own lives this morning and how you desire for us to demonstrate it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what's happening here? Context. David has been anointed as the future king of Israel. Well, Saul, the current king of Israel, is not a big fan of that decision because he wants his own house to retain control. He wants his son Jonathan to become the king after him and then his grandson to become king after him. Like, he wants a dynasty. He doesn't like the fact that some other dude with some other family uh, is going to become the king. So what are you going to do? You're going to kill that dude. If you're king and you don't want someone else to become king, you kill him. That's kind of the standard model of how you handle, uh, handle rivals in the world. Now, for David, this is a legit threat. So Saul has actually carried out multiple threats against David's life. And one day, they were in his palace, and he just picks, Saul picks up a, like a spear and just throws it at David. And uh, David is able to get away from that. So, like, this is a legit threat. It's not just like, oh, dude, I'm going to kill you. And you know it's not actually a threat. You know he's not actually going to kill you. This is real. Saul said that, and David's like, oh, no, he really is going to kill me. And so, so David's on the run. And so Saul is chasing him with 3,000 soldiers. And so uh, they've gone into the wilderness to hunt him down. And so he's got a death warrant on his life, and the army of the kingdom is coming after him. Now, for David, he's got a ragtag group of guys functioning as his militia. These are guys who had trouble with the law, had debts, had issues, and so they wanted to get away from society, and they found themselves this other guy who could be the future leader, and they want to associate themselves with him and get on his good side. So they've become his warriors, his soldiers. Now, all of them, there's about 300, they're off running from Saul together, and so they've headed to in Gedi, which is where they're at now. And what this is, is it's a mountainous desert. So just think of, it's like hills, and just think of like Middle East hills that are all brown with a bunch of caves in it. That's where they're at. And these caves are kind of uh, uh, labyrinths. There's a, there's a lot of places to like, there's split-offs where you can hide back in here, and it gets really, really dark really, really quick. And, uh, and so a lot of bandits would hide out. Actually, still today, a lot of bandits will go and hide out in these caves when they're running from the law. And so that's where David's at. And so for him, this is a real problem. It's a legit concern of his that someone is going to come after him and kill him. And, uh, and so what I want us to see in this story today, in this, it's not like in, this, in this text today, is someone who's being squeezed by their world and then is faced with a decision. Am I going to follow my impulse or am I going to follow discipline? And that's where we're at. That's what I want us to see today. I want us to see someone who's, who's confronted by their impulses. And so you and I are faced with a myriad of decisions every day that concern our self-control. There are two categories within which our self-control is challenged. And so the first one is habits. So you and I are designed 
to create habits. Like our brains naturally create habits. And actually, it's a really good thing. That's a God-given ability within us for our brains to naturally create habits. For example, this morning when you put on your shoes, did you consciously think about whether you're going to put on your left one or your right one first? Did you sit down and think, should I put my left one on or my right one? Or did you just do it? For me, it's my right foot. I don't know why I'm left-handed. I don't know why I didn't choose left. Left's always better. But I choose right. And, uh, and so I do my right foot. But you know what I never think about every single day? What shoe should I put on? It's a habit. Your brain naturally does it so that way it can divert resources towards other things that are more important. And so you, these motions you go through every day, you just naturally do it. But because we live in a broken world... Our habits can very easily be co-opted into creating harmful habits. And you and I both know this. We all experience this. So, for example, gluttony. Over Every time I go to a Mexican restaurant, I always leave thinking, wow, I feel awful. And, and then I, like, struggle to walk to the car because I've eaten too, many chips and, too much chips and salsa. And so, like, gluttony is something, like, just commonly just naturally comes out of me when I'm, when I'm eating Mexican food or, or turning on the TV and lounging. The moment I get home from work, the moment you get home from work, and you're like, and you look up four hours later, and you're like, oh, wow, I've been watching TV for four hours. And, like, you just kind of get in the routine of it, the habit of it, or grabbing alcohol at specific times every day to where after, over time you just realize this is just kind of what I do. I just, I take a shot at this time every single day. Um, or... Or uh, because you put yourself around people, content, shows, music, whatever, uh, in which there's a lot of bad language or crude jokes. And so over time, you've developed a habit of thinking in that manner, and that's what comes out of you. And so these habits are things, because we live in a broken world, develop within us. And because we're wired this way to create habits, you can see how addiction arises within our lives uh, and in those we love. So with drugs, alcohol, uh, porn, food, buying stuff, you name it. And it's within this design of creating habits that the call to exercise self-control is a very real challenge for us. Now, there's a second way in which self-control is a challenge or, or is tested, and that's with our reactions. And so sometimes issues concerning self-control just fall into your lap. And so it's just something that happens to you, and you're like, oh, i got to decide what to do now. So say you're looking at foxsports.com, and all of a sudden an ad pops up on the side that's really suggestive, and there's a decision point for you of, am I going to get away from this really quickly, or am I going to linger here longer than I should? Or you're watching TV, and a suggestive scene pops up, and you're like, what am I going to do at this moment? Um, or, or chips and salsa are placed in front of you. I don't know. Maybe you should go to that restaurant. Maybe not. Uh, a car cuts you off. And you've got to decide in the moment, am I going to allow my anger to, to come out of me in this moment, or am I going to just chill out? Or, or you feel an impulse to buy something. This is me, 100%. Like, so Derek is our saver. I am our spender. I love spending money. Like, it's one of my favorite things to do in the world. And uh, so if you go with me to Sam's, we're like, okay, uh, we, you can walk in, and you can say, I can say, man, I'm, I've only got to get two things. I've got to get water, and i got to get a brisket, or something, you know, whatever it is I'm there for. And I'm walking in, and I'm like... 24 pack of glass Cokes, of course I need that. It's $22 later, I've got Cokes in my, my, my thing, and then you walk past and you're like, okay, well, of course, I need, I need a two pack of pork shoulders, of course, I need that, it's a good price. And so like I'll leave and I'm like, oh, I spent $300 today. 
I meant to spend 20. It was a cheap brisket, I guess. But that's like, that's me, like impulse. Like I, I love buying things on impulse. It's one of my favorite things. It's one of my hobbies. And, or another thing is you feel pressure from a coworker or a friend to do something questionable. And so these, sometimes these situations fall into your lap and you're like, okay, what am I going to do with it in this moment? What decision am I going to make? And for David here, in chapter 24, he is faced with this type of decision, this type of situation. A defining moment has fallen into his lap, and now he is confronted with whether he's going to submit to discipline and control or whether he's going to follow his impulses. And so look at verse 3 with me. When Saul came to the sheep pens along the road... A cave was there, and so he's hunting David. He's hunting David, and they're walking along, and they come to a cave. And this is the this is when you're a middle school guy, when you're younger, like oh, this is the greatest story in the world. Saul comes along the road. He's got his whole army with him, and he stops to go in the cave to relieve himself. It's the greatest. I, how do you preach this? Like it's a weird sentence to say in front of everyone here. But it's, so there's a, a scene in Jurassic Park uh, when the Tyrannosaurus Rex is coming and like these guys are, all, the, all of them are packed into two Ford Explorers and this Tyrannosaurus Rex is on top of them and all of a sudden this lawyer guy who's kind of a minor character, he gets scared and he thinks, if I get away from this car, then I'm going to be safer. And so he jumps out of the car and runs into a restroom trying to hide and everyone in the car is looking at him like, what is he doing? And then Jeff Goldblum says, when you got to go, you got to go. It's the greatest. I love that line so much. Well, that's where Saul's at, okay? He's hunting, okay? And all of a sudden, nature called, and he had to go inside and take care of business. When you do that, you go alone. You don't bring people with you. And so he heads inside to this cave alone. And lo and behold, David... And his men, his militia, are hiding out. They're staying in the recesses of that very cave. And so that's what's happening here. And so, uh, so you got to look at this situation. You got to think, what are the odds? Like, what are the odds? What providence? Like, God is work, obviously working this situation out to where David's enemy is going to be put right in front of David, and he's kind of in a vulnerable position. And, uh, and, so, uh, and so all of David's guys are getting this perception. They're looking at this, and they're like, oh, my gosh, this is crazy. This is Saul. God must have done this. God brought this into, to, to, to pass. And so they're all thinking to themselves and they're discussing. They're saying, God is giving David the opportunity to be rid of his biggest problem, his biggest enemy, and to gain his throne now. If you kill the king and you're the future king, then you become the king. And it's attempting justification. Look what they say in verse 4. So his men say to him, look, this is the day the Lord told you about. I will give your enemy over to you so that you can do to him whatever you desire. And that's a very tempting justification to go kill someone. It says God's cool with it, or at least God understands. But here's the catch, is that if you look back in Samuel, in the book of Samuel, 
there is no verse in which God says this. There's nothing that quotes this promise. And so, so either they're, what they're thinking is, maybe God has given you a promise now and that he's saying to you, go kill this guy because I'm giving him to you to do whatever you want to him. Maybe that's what they're saying. Or maybe they're misapplying a prophecy that God gave to a different situation altogether. And they're just saying, hey, God did it then, and so God means it now. We don't know. But here's the truth, is that you and I, we can easily trick or convince ourselves into believing that God spoke to us, even in a situation that contradicts His Word. We can trick ourselves into believing God spoke to us, even in a situation that's contrary to His Word. And so what they're telling him is, go murder that guy. God's cool with it. And often, we get into a situation, we already know what we want to do. We already know what we want the answer to be, and we just want God to say it's okay. You see this all the time in, like, divorces. You're like, no, God wants me to be happy. No, God wants you to, to stay committed to what you committed to. But in this situation, you're like, you try to justify it, and you're like, no, God, God, God's cool with it. God spoke to me. He wants me to do this. And so looking at this text, the impulse to murdering someone doesn't totally resonate with most of us. I mean, maybe it does with some of us. Most of us, we don't think, man, I just feel like David here, where I feel, I feel like murdering people all the time. Like, no, most of us don't resonate with this. Uh, but if you take a step back, this impulse really could be anything. Because what is David trying to do? What's he being tempted with? Getting rid of a big problem in his life. He's got a big issue, and his men are pushing for a solution. He's got an issue, and his men are coming to him, and they're like, listen, we see your problem. Here's a way to fix it. And so there's a theme in the book of Samuel. Originally, First and Second Samuel were just one book. Uh, and there's a theme in Samuel uh, leading up to David's gaining the throne, in which David has all of these outside voices trying to tell him what God wants him to do. So this is the first of at least four instances in which he has other people around him on his team that are telling him, go kill that guy. God wants you to do it. And so what they're telling him is God put this person here for you to eliminate so that you can gain from it. And he's got that happening to him over and over again. And this is the first time it's happening. And so look at David's initial instinct. Look at verse, the end of verse 4. And so David listened, and, and David got up and secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And so David got up, and he moved, moved quietly in the back of the cave. He went up to Saul, or at least to his robe. I imagine Saul took it off and set it to the side. And David went up and, and cut off a, a piece of his robe. Now, you and me, we might listen to this, you and I, you and me, you, whatever, uh, we might read this and think, wow, that's weird. This guy's taking care of business. They say, go kill him. And you go, like, take his shirt. You, like, <laughs> and, like, cut off a corner of his shirt and then run off. Like, that's a weird thing to do, right? But this is a symbolic action. So clothes, especially for someone of his rank, meant a lot. Your clothes meant a lot. For you and me, if we run out of clothes or if we mess up our shirt or whatever, we get oil on it, and we're like, oh, man, this shirt's trash. You just go to the store, you go buy a new one. For these guys, it was, it was more of a thing. 
but especially if you're someone of rank. Think of someone in military, uh, uh, like uh, military, with military clothes. Like, you got to take care of your clothes. Like, that is a significant, a very important thing of having your, your, dress, your dress clothes, like, like be pressed and be, be, uh, uh, don't have any stains or anything on them. Like, you, you want to make sure all of your, your plaques are, what are they called, Don? What are they called? The plaques, the things? Your metal things, whatever. I, I wasn't military, but the things that go on your shirt. You want to make sure they're all like perfectly lined up. Like you want to make sure. So for Saul, this is where he, these are his dress clothes. Like he, this signifies him as the king. And so David goes up and he goes to that royal robe and he cuts it up. And so symbolically, this means. David is showing there's going to be a transfer of power from Saul's house to his because now he has a portion of this royal robe. But the second thing it does is it takes this robe from a state of compliance to the Torah into a state of noncompliance to the Torah to where Saul shouldn't be able to wear it anymore because it's not in line with the law. And so, in essence, David is symbolically invalidating Saul's claim to the kingship. Now, in that moment, you're like, why would you do that? Why are, like, this guy's here to kill, and you're going to, like, do some, like, offhand weird gestures things, like, to, like, like symbolically, I just killed you. Like, that, that doesn't do much if the guy's still there leading an army to kill you. That's a weird thing to do. I don't know why he did this. I don't know. It's weird. But David immediately recognizes the powerful implications of what he just did. So if you ever have a moment where you do something, you follow your impulse, and, uh, and you, fin- you complete it, whatever it is. You say the thing you shouldn't have said to your spouse or to your coworker, or you punch your little brother, and then you realize, oh, no, dad's going dad's gonna to find out about this. And you have this moment to where you're like, oh, no, I might have just messed up. That's where David's at. Look at verse 5. Afterward, David's conscience bothered him because he cut off the corner of Saul's robe. So he goes back to his men. He's like, oh, I got it. And then the more he sits there and thinks about it, he's like, man, I messed up. And he's starting to feel a little bit of a weight from it, his conscience. And so there's a question for all of us in this type of situation. When you're confronted with your impulse and you're like, what am I going to do? I want to follow this. I want to do this. I want to harm this person or whatever. And, and, and you're confronted with your conscience. And the question is, is are you going to dive in or are you going to run away? Are you going to suppress your conscience and suppress your spirit or are you going to suppress the spirit or are you going to respond and listen to it? That's a question. And so how many times have you thought, well, I've already gone this far, for four. I've already gone this far, so whatever, I might as well. Yeah, how, many, how many of us, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many times have, have you or your spouse or your parents been on a diet and you thought, well, I had donuts for breakfast and I went to Velvet Taco and ate the tater tots for lunch. And so I might as well just forget about dinner and then I'll just catch up again on Monday. Like how many times have, have you thought that or heard someone say that? Like all the time, like, like our natural instinct is like, eh, I messed up. I'll just catch it again tomorrow. Well, or we might think, we're in this situation. You're like, man, I messed up. I really want to pursue this. God's going to forgive me anyway. And so I'll just do it, and then I'll come back, and I'll ask him for forgiveness. 
And so we are people who desperately need self-control. We are. This is our, like, naturally. Like, we don't naturally just, just flourish with self-control. We, we need it to be developed within us. And so here's the truth. What we're going to learn from David is you don't actually have to take that next step. You don't have to take the next step because you've already begun. You can always hit the escape button. Look at verse 6. And all of a sudden, he listens to his conscience. And David said to his men, as the Lord is my witness, I would never do such a thing to my Lord, the king. He's talking about the king, the Lord's anointed. He's saying, I'm not going to hurt the king because God is the one who placed him there. And I want you all to recognize I'm never going to harm him. I will never lift my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. And with these words, David persuaded his men, and he did not let them rise up against Saul. What he said is, I'm not doing this, and you're not doing it either. He stood up with resolve, and he said, this is what we're doing, and you're going to follow. And so after this decision, it could be one of those uh, where maybe he felt really good about it. He's kind of proud about the fact that he, 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 he decided to display self-control. And, uh, you know, or maybe it's one of those times when you leave and you think, wow, that was really hard, and that's not at all what I wanted to do, but I pursued God anyway. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what, how he felt. But David, uh, what we do know is David could have fixed his problem here. Fixed. But often, and you know this is true, when we attempt to fix an issue through rash decisions or impulses, we actually end up creating more and bigger problems. But I want you to see what happens next. Because I want you to see the benefit from, from David's self-control. Look at the end of verse 7. Then Saul left the cave and went on his way. He didn't know anything happened. Everything happened behind the scenes. He had no clue. So he finished his business, puts his coat back on or his robe, heads out, doesn't know it's cut. And after that, David got up, went out of the cave, and called to Saul. My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David knelt low with his face to the ground and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of the people who say, look, David intends to harm you. You can see with your own eyes that God, the Lord, handed you over to me in the cave. Someone advised me to kill you, but I took pity on you and said, I won't lift my finger against the Lord since he is the Lord's anointed. Look, my father, look at the corner of your robe in my hand. I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. Recognize that I've committed no crime or rebellion. I haven't sinned against you, even though you are hunting me down to take my life. I want you to see the benefit here, because what David just did is he declared his innocence and his goodwill towards Saul. And there are three benefits of this that we can see right here in the text. The first is that Saul is silenced. His greatest problem is silenced in front of him. Saul's justification to kill David is unfounded. Why? Because David just proved he's a supporter. David just proved he's not an enemy. He rebuffed calls to assassinate and instead chose to save Saul's life from his men. And the robe is proof. So Saul's attempt to kill David is illegitimate. And that's shown to all of Saul's army because David did this in front of everyone. His whole army knows 
hey, wait, this guy's not an enemy. The second thing is this, is for that day, the threat is over. For that day for David, because he displayed self-control, that threat was over. Look, Saul packed up and went home after this. Saul took his guys and they went back to, back to Jerusalem. And, uh, and, and this is the opposite of what would have happened had David actually killed Saul. Think about it. David was cornered in a cave. There are 3,000 soldiers soil, soil, loyal to the king waiting outside. After a while, I mean, after a significant amount of time, someone would have gone in there to check on Saul. Like, it, like you, don't, you're not, you can't be in there indefinitely, and so someone's going to go check on things. David can't hide in there for, 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 forever, and he's cornered in there. So had they gone in there and found their king dead, do you think they would have just gone home? No. They would have killed whoever assassinated their king. David, David's decision to display, uh, display discipline in this moment actually saved his and everyone else's life. But instead of that, the threat was over for the day. Tunnel vision for David in that moment would have been deadly for him and his men. But here's the third thing. Here's the third benefit from his self-control in this moment. And this is the most important one for us. Is David's claim to the throne was legitimized. Here's what I mean by that. His claim to the throne was legitimized. David can now claim innocence in ascending to the throne in front of all of Israel. He can no longer be uh, accused of, of committing a coup, of, of assuming the throne through illegitimate circumstances. And so, and so this continues the precedent of divine right. What that means is God picks the ruler and places him there. And because God placed him there, then you can't question it. Well, if you assassinate the previous guy that God placed there, then you kind of forfeit your ability to claim that same right, right? That sets a bad precedent. But for David... Had he killed Saul, it would have undermined his own kingship because other people would have done the same thing to him that he did to Saul. Kill him, get him out of there, take his spot. But no, he made God placing him as the king legitimate in the eyes of everyone. And instead, David's not an illegitimate usurper. He didn't steal the throne. Instead, he displayed loyalty to Saul and he displayed faith in God. Here is why this is the most important one for us to hear about today. It's because your actions, your actions, whether indulgence or self-control, may have effects well beyond what you can see in the moment. Your actions, whether indulgence or self-control, may have effects well beyond what you can see in the moment. So catch this. Your self-control today may pay dividends later. Or your lack of self-control today may destroy your future. And so, so your discipline and your decisions is actually vital. And some of us here know the pain of that statement. Some of us here know the pain 
that a lack of self-control can create. And here's the hope, is that Jesus offers us forgiveness and grace. Jesus offers us forgiveness and grace for all of us sinners, for every one of us. He, he, he took our, our bad habits and our wanton moments with him to the cross. That's what he did. And so now all of us careless and lustful people can find forgiveness and refuge and grace in him. And then he says to us, he says, let's start over. Jesus says, I nailed your bad habits. I nailed your bad decisions. I nailed your moments of of no self-control to the cross with me. And so let's start over new with you as a new creation. And that's what Jesus does for us. That's what he does. And so he says, I want to make you a new person to where you die. When you die to your old self, your old ways, your old life, and you're born again as a new person in him. And now this doesn't lead to an instantaneous fix. It doesn't mean, I believe in Jesus, all problems are gone. That's not what it means. At times, it's actually painfully slow work. But what it does, I mean, but what does Paul tell us back in Galatians 5? He says this, walk by the Spirit and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. The closer you walk to Christ in the power of the Spirit, the more you will see this fruit developed in your life. That's what Paul tells us. And so I want to give you a couple practical steps. These are short, don't worry. Practical steps to help you develop self-control. One, spend time with Jesus. Spend time with Jesus. Read His Word. Take time to develop your relationship with Him. Two, meet with others in a discipleship group. Because you can't do this alone. You need other people. You need other people. And so invite other people to hold you accountable for how you spend your time and how you react. Meet in a discipleship group. Three, celebrate small wins. Celebrate small wins. Every moment of resisting temptation, resisting urges, of choosing to display self-control is a win. It's a win. Every moment is a win. Four, don't keep count of the days. I learned this, so don't keep count of the days. I learned this from a professor at Southwestern uh, who, who works with uh, um, uh, drug addicts and, and their families. And um, he, 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 was, he was teaching us about this, and he said, you don't want to keep count of your amount of days you've been sober. That's a bad idea. Don't, like, just lose the day counter. Don't keep track of it. Why? Because, uh, because what that does is it keeps your habit, it keeps your addiction, it keeps your problems in the forefront of your mind, and what it does is it tells you you're expecting to relapse. If you keep counting the days, it's telling you you're expecting to fall back into it. Because if you're counting the days, you're celebrating, like you're keeping up with how many days it's been, so that way, so that way you can try to go further and further each time. He's like, no, that's keeping it in front of your mind and telling you you're going to fall into it again, and we'll just restart the counter. He's like, no, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Because what you don't want to do is allow a relapse or a moment of displaying uh, no discipline to, to undo in your mind every instance of self-control you've displayed up until that point. It doesn't erase it. 
one moment of falling into sin doesn't erase other moments in which you have been victorious in that. It doesn't erase it. It doesn't have to. And here's the last one, number five. Remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. Because for all of us who are in this boat, and all of us need help with self-control. And here's what Jesus says. I love you. Jesus loves you, and he died for you, and he now offers you grace and forgiveness, and he sent his spirit to live in you if you are a believer, to guide you to be holy like our God. Remember the gospel. Jesus loves you, and he's walking with you in this. And so let's pray. So, Father, come before you. We thank you for your word. And so I pray that you would make this real for us this morning. Allow us to um, um, just to think about this, to be able to be reminded about this this week of how we want to be people who are disciplined like you. And so help us. Help us to be people who display self-control and are able to work in your world in the way that you desire us to. And so we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.